This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Our topic, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. Sometimes it's frustrating for people to look at the agencies and governments and figures for information about the pandemic, and then it seems to change, goes back and forth. There's a flip-flop. CDC's done this again, put out guidance on how the virus is uh, transmitted through airborne aerosols. Now it's claiming that was a, a draft version. It was mistakenly posted before it was ready. So what's really going on? The U.S. is about to hit 200,000 COVID-related deaths. Is the worst over or is it yet to come? California's Central Valley, arguably the most important farming region in the country, will look at how the farm workers are getting through the pandemic. And we've been down the economic road many times. Now we'll look into how hard minority communities are getting hit. And being stuck at home has led to a nostalgic interest in an old racing toy. But let's get back to the flip-flopping of the CDC. I like saying that. Flip-flopping. Flip-flop. It flip, sounds flop, fun. Flip-flop. But in practice. Yeah, it's not. Dr. Paul Offit is an infectious disease pediatrician, professor of vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a member of the CDC's advisory committee on immunization practices. So, doctor, what in the world is going on? It's... It is confusing. I mean, I, I came on to actually on the advisory committee for immunization practices more than 20 years ago. Now I'm just a consulting person, but the um, I've never seen this before. Never. I mean, it, it, you get the sense that it's not just the scientists at the CDC that are making this decision, but that there are people in the administration who want one thing or another, and so things go back and forth. It's confusing. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, because that's the immediate, uh, if we jump into the comment section of the articles, that's what you start to see. Oh, I see HHS making moves again, or oh, they don't want to scare people and they want to lessen this or whatever it is. Do you think there's something fishy going on? Or maybe the draft is coming and they hit go a little too soon and it'll get here eventually. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that, that this, the virus is certainly at least spread by small droplets. There probably is a, an aerosolized component to it, but I, I don't think it's big. And measles, for example, is spread by aerosolization. So measles has a contagiousness index that is 10 times greater than, than this virus. For example, if somebody comes into our hospital with measles and they go into, into one of the treatment rooms of the emergency department, no one can go in that room for the next two hours until those very tiny droplets settle. I mean, measles, you know, those viruses hang in, those, those droplets hang in there like a ghost. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, that's why it's so much more contagious. You don't even have to have face-to-face contact with anybody who has measles. You just have to be in their airspace within two hours of being there, of them being there. That's not this virus. So I, I don't, I, although I think there is an aerosolized component, I think it's a smaller component. Right. But here's, here's the problem. As you know, we're, we're coming up to a point where we may, and I, I do emphasize, may have a, a, a vaccine at some point in the not-too-distant future that's effective and, and, and safe for people to take. But the polls are already showing a lot of people have great distrust of, of vaccines, of course, and of the government in particular on this. These sort of flip-flops, not just on the part of the CDC, but as you know, there have been some flip-flopping on the part of the FDA as well. When you have the two premier uh, you know, agencies in the country that are supposed to give it straight to the American public about things involving medicine and health and and all those things that fit under that rubric. 
when you have all this flip-flopping, how are people going to make a logical, well-informed decision? No, I think you're right. I think if we get to the point in this country where we don't trust the FDA, we're in trouble. I mean, the FDA stands between the pharmaceutical industry and the American public to make sure that we have products that are safe and effective. And if we doubt whether or not they're, they're, they're doing that, and, and at some level, when you see the pharmaceutical companies, for example, writing a letter saying, don't worry about it, we aren't going to release any vaccine that, and, until it's been shown to be safe and effective. I mean, that's the FDA's job. So you're already seeing that when you see that kind of letter, that they understand that there is that fear of the, that the, that the FDA isn't doing its job. And, and when you saw what happened with hydroxychloroquine, or you saw what happened with convalescent plasma, neither of which have been shown to work, and one of which, hydroxychloroquine, is clearly dangerous. I mean, you worry whether the FDA is doing that and whether that's now going to spill over to vaccines. I, I don't think so. I'm still choosing to believe that is not going to happen with vaccines. Let's just recap for people who may be confused at this point. You think people are confused, do they, you? They could be confused <laughs> at this point. So um, touch can be, but not as likely as getting coughed on or sneezed on by somebody. That's the more likely route for spread. So we wear masks and we stay six feet apart. Maybe, and doctor, jump in if I'm wrong in any of this. Maybe you need more than six feet, but uh, six feet is good if you've got to be close to someone who's not in your family. Now, maybe we can have aerosolized airborne spread as well. This is why ventilation is important. If someone comes to your house to do something, crack the window, get some airflow in there later on. But that's not our biggest worry right now. We'll see what the science says later on. Yes, no? I think that's fair. I think that is a fair summary. All right. Dr. Paul Offit, infectious disease pediatrician, professor, vaccinology, University of Pennsylvania. Another dark milestone for the U.S. is coming at any time now. The number of virus-related deaths reaching 200,000. That's the most in the world, by the way, so far. Are we making progress? Will things get worse? Dr. Anand Parekh is chief medical officer of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Doctor, where do you think we're headed? By all accounts, we're probably already at the 200,000 mark, and I think most experts would agree that that's likely an underestimate. We just haven't been able to test uh, as many people as we'd like. So so we likely have even more cases, and, and we likely have, have more deaths than, than what has been uh, confirmed. Uh, but we are still at a very fragile point. Uh, we have nearly 40,000 confirmed cases daily, 500 to 1,000 deaths um, across the United States daily, you have more than half the states uh, that have uh, too high of a positivity rate, and, and really that's an indicator for insufficient uh, testing. Uh, we're seeing uh, increases in, in caseloads, particularly in the Midwest, Great Plains. Uh, the Southeast is still um, a concerning area. Frankly, the entire country outside, perhaps New England, as well as uh, a couple of additional states, um, are still uh, going through a, really a critical phase. And nothing has fundamentally changed with respect to this virus. It's still highly transmissible. Uh, it's lethal. Uh, and uh, we are, of course, uh, nowhere near population immunity. Uh, perhaps uh, 10 to 20 percent of the population uh, uh, may have some sort of immunity, and we don't know how long uh, that lasts. So um, uh, and we are uh, still uh, a ways away uh, from having a vaccine, certainly uh, a vaccine that's safe and effective uh, and one that um, the entire population can benefit from. So we are still very much six months into this um, at, a, at a critical phase 
for this country, and we can look abroad, or we can just simply look at regions of the country, how it's so important to not let our guard uh, down. We have to be vigilant uh, with the use of wearing masks uh, in public, uh, maintaining physical distancing, uh, washing our hands, uh, being really smart about our interactions. All right. And, 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 and yes, I think that that's something that, that hopefully more and more people will agree upon if they haven't uh, already. But having said that, as we ticked off in the open, um, country after country, uh, w- even ones that were far more successful, which were most, than we have been in, in at least for a while containing the virus, once they start opening things up, uh, even with masks, even with social distancing, the virus does come roaring back. And having a vaccine, as you know, is, is not a certainty. I mean, there's never, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's ever been a successful vaccine for anything in the coronavirus family. And there are a whole bunch of other diseases that vaccines have been promised for decades with none yet available. We may not get a vaccine. What happens then? I think you're right. Vaccine production is very unpredictable. Uh, and I think what is ongoing right now in many ways is unprecedented, um, thanks to biomedical sciences, how quickly uh, uh, so many across the world, frankly, are trying to come up with a vaccine that's safe and effective. I think we will get a vaccine. Uh, it remains to be seen how quickly we can get a vaccine. Uh, but even if we get a, um, a safe and effective vaccine, Uh, it's going to take a few months to get there, and then it's going to take likely most of 2021 to vaccinate the American public. Uh, We'll have to look at priority groups. We'll have to look at um, uh, we'll have to look at each individual vaccine to see which populations uh, uh, fit best with which vaccine. So I think there there are a number of unknowns there. But even throughout this whole process, we still have to stay true to public health principles in the sense that all the things that, that we need to be doing now um, and many are doing in terms of, of wearing masks and physical distancing uh, are going to be really, really important washing hands. So that doesn't go away uh, for however long it takes uh, for us to reach a level of immunity uh, from this virus. And it may take absolutely uh, some time. And there is fatigue, though. And this is something that, that health officials do point to and saying, you know, some people just they've they tried. They got pretty far. Not everybody's there anymore. And things are reopening and that's accelerating cases as we knew it would. But how do you fight the fatigue when some people are just really, really tired of all this? Part of the fatigue is has been the absolutely poor communication from elected officials uh, uh, and, uh, and, and many leaders across the United States since uh, the pandemic uh, began. Uh, and I think uh, this has not been, uh, you know, a strength of the current administration, but anything and everything from the use of masks to avoiding indoor gatherings uh, um, to uh, the role of testing to, uh, you know, even today, uh, you know, uh, controversies around the transmission of the virus uh, droplet versus aerosol. I think particularly when you're in an environment where uh, there is uneven communication, uh, communication that is not evidence-based uh, when you have uh, political leaders as opposed to scientific experts leading the discussions, briefing the American public. I think that actually also builds uh, the fatigue because it, it's one thing, 
you know, being able to be honest and evidence-based with the American public and saying, this is where we are, um, and, and you knowing at least it's, it's, it's information uh, that is accurate. Uh, but it's a whole other thing when uh, what you're hearing changes every week or, or weeks and months. And I think actually that really contributes to the fatigue as well. If there was clear communication. This is where we are. This is where we need to be. This is for how. This is how long we'll need to um, uh, press forward with this mitigation measure. I think that could go a long ways to reassuring the American public that this isn't going to last forever. Um, but these are the steps we need to go through, and we're all in this together. Dr. Anand Parekh, Chief Medical Officer, Bipartisan Policy Center. Doctor, thanks. Without farm workers, we would not eat. It's that simple. We need them out there, and we need them to be healthy. And there are a lot of them in the Central Valley of California. How are they holding up during the pandemic physically, mentally? KCBS's Kathy Novak went to the region, talked to workers, others about farm life in the midst of the pandemic. So this is the community of all the trailers. On a hot, smoky Saturday, Armando Valdez is driving around the heart of the Central Valley's farmland. This is Racing City. It's one of the poorest little communities. He runs Fresno's Community Center for the Arts and Technology, offering free classes in everything from music to drone tech. But the nonprofit had to close because of the pandemic. We were like, you know what, my kids out there gonna need us. So I just started going to their homes and yeah, we started finding all kinds of things. In April, he started checking up on farm worker families with his colleague, Jenny Rodriguez. Armando and I witnessed ourselves. A bus goes by with farm workers in it. The bus driver has a mask on. Oh, well, cool. But every worker inside packed like sardines in this big bus. No masks, nothing. The center had sewing machines for dance costumes, so they made and distributed masks, around 7,000 so far. And they discovered other problems. We have found three camps of farm workers. And they were evicted because they couldn't pay the rent because there was no work. Other families were struggling to pay bills and keep up with distance learning. We started taking them like school supplies and stuff. And then we started just grabbing food. They packed food boxes for 15 families. Then friends started donating their stimulus checks, $17,000 worth of them. We started buying food, helping them with the rent, PG&E. So it went from 15 families. Now we have, oh my goodness, I want to say close to 1,000 families that we have served. Including these families in Kerman. Do you guys want some socks? Teenagers from the center, themselves children of farm workers, have volunteered to help, laying out donations on a table. 66-year-old Petra found some shirts she can use working in the fields. This is exactly what my goal is, to help those that feed us. Jenny was once a farm worker herself. She knows it's hard, especially with the heat and smoke. Yeah, but we have to work. We have to work to live, pay rent, buy food, says Petra. They are in here illegally, right? Their country didn't provide for them. Okay, I understand that. But I'll tell you what, they're out there doing the work that you aren't going to go out there and do. I'm not going to go out there and do it either. I used to do it. I am not going to go chop lettuce, pick onions, and no way, Jose, because it is tough work. It is hard work. In Fresno County, Kathy Novak, KCBS. So many people have been impacted financially in a bad way since the pandemic started, but it's not in the same way. Minority communities bearing the brunt of the bad economy. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Dr. Robert Splendon, professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, about how the most vulnerable in the U.S. are trying to hold on. Our uh, belief was that we would find 
a relatively small number of people who were in terrible shape uh, as a result of this. What we found uh, was generically that nearly half of America was having very serious financial problems, and it was incredibly worse among uh, minority communities, uh, the black community, Latino community, and Native American. And where it comes together is that they are a community that are most dying uh, from highest rates of death uh, for, for this outbreak, highest number of cases. So uh, our uh, thought originally was that with all these programs, they'd be targeted in some way at communities that have very high caseloads, and it would provide a cushion. It wouldn't solve the fact of the general economic situation, but it would provide a, a, a cushion. And what we found were really quite staggering uh, numbers. So financially, 72% of Latinos said they had, were having serious financial problems since the outbreak. 60% of Blacks, 55% of Native Americans. And that compared to, say, just 36% of whites. But uh, even among the broader community, you see this among people who earn less than $100,000 a year. We have found that among people who lost their jobs or wages cut back. And again, uh, listening to the national news, I thought we had programs to protect people whose hours were cut back and wages. And, and, and it turns out they just have terrible financial problems. Well, wh what do I mean? Let's make it as simple as possible. So uh, essentially, uh, for minority Americans, four in 10 said that since the outbreak, they've run out of their savings, which means that something goes wrong next week. There's, there's no, well, I'll write a check from our fund. They, they just don't have it. And then very large numbers of people can pay uh, their rent, their mortgages, their credit card, debts, their utilities, their air conditioning. They just can't pay uh, for that. And they're in, in, in real uh, uh, trouble for that, which means one slip, one of these households who are more threatened by dying are threatened by their financial side just falling apart in the next few months. And again, we were surprised as to how large the numbers were. Uh, if you watch the national news, we have this program and this program and uh, charitable groups saying we're giving this and we're that. And so we just assume that when all comes together, a much smaller share of communities, in this case, minority uh, communities who have disproportionate economic issues and uh, race and ethnic discrimination. But we would have put a cushion uh, under that. So what it, it finds that if there is a cushion, they are incredibly financially vulnerable. And by vulnerable, it's the household falling apart financially uh, over the next month. And the second thing is, and I'm sure it's true in the Philadelphia area, all the parents were sort of told we're going to open up the schools and we're going to go back. And an awful lot of parents now find their kids having to educate them at home online. And what we found is a very large share of minority communities are having trouble, serious trouble, basically turning their home into a classroom for their child. Other things, recall, they may have to work part time. They don't have this. They may have larger family sizes for this. And so we're talking about uh, the next generation, the American dream. The kids are going to get the education. They're going to go on. And they're very substantial number. 
uh, are doing that. And then, uh, which I emphasize almost every place, you listen to school experts say, well, we'll just send everybody an iPad and they'll just take the course. And it turns out in general, we found among minority communities uh, close to four in 10 have problems with connectivity. It's not just they don't have an iPad. It keeps going down. So just the thing about this as the parental level, your child needs to get the basic math course. It's going to be taught on a screen at home. And you're telling our interviewers that my screen keeps going down. So we have parents struggling to educate the kids at home with all these other things going on. And the connectivity is not working well for it. So you can see these kids, you know, six months a year are going to be unbelievably disadvantaged. Electricity is buzzing again around slot car racing. Remember those? They're, I do remember. Remember those? those? Well, you know, yeah. for those who don't, they're those toy cars that you put in a slot, and when you pull the trigger of your little racing, racing gun, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it yeah. generates. Yeah, it generates an electric current that shoots the car around the track. Lots of people had fun with them. And uh, the hobby has a new life as people are locked down at home, finding new and old things to keep them entertained. Frank Thiessen is president of Carrera of America, which makes the slot cars and the tracks. He talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. It's all about action, speed, and competition. So this is the sort of thing you could put, uh, I don't know, maybe on a ping pong table or something like that in the basement. Exactly. Wherever you have a little bit of space, the tracks can be very in size. We have different scales available, so it can fit in any home, in every children's room, and in every adult's basement. Now, with uh, everyone stuck at home, I think there was an assumption that video games would be all the rage. Why are you seeing a resurgence in something like this? I think that that, uh, people are also looking for things that they can do together as a family, as a group, as friends together. Uh, Video games, of course, they're huge. They will not go away, and they're great. But there is not a communal experience there. And people trying to find things now that they can do together as a pair, as a whole family, and as a group of friends. With the tracks or, or the controllers, any sort of technological changes or advances from what we remember from when we were kids? Yeah, well, when we were kids, it was basically you had uh, a track with uh, two lanes, two cars were racing each other. That is still what we're doing uh, uh, partly today. But we also have, of course, made progress on the technological side. So there's a digital experience. Now Now you can actually waste six cars on a two-lane track. And these cars can have virtual digital fuel so you can run out of fuel you can set your braking levels and you can also set your speed level so if somebody is not as experienced to make it a fair fair competition you can actually level that out between the two drivers so since this is a segment for entrepreneurs what do you say to entrepreneurs out there who think uh, something always has to be different it always has to be cutting edge and so they sort of shy away from the things that are these old standbys i think People, especially in, in times like these now, with, with the unfortunate times with, with COVID, people always think about things were better in the past. And that is a little bit what we experience now. So you go back to uh, times when you would, would feel more secure. And we see that now with parents and grandparents, they think, what did we do when we were kids? So that's how they find out again. And we experience the fun they had with slot car racing. So, yeah, we made progress on the technological side, but 
the fun is still the same like we had when we were kids 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Are people able to personalize this? I mean, is it all sort of one package or can they get their own cars and that sort of thing? Yeah, you have, uh, of course, your, your startup packages in different sizes, and then you can just add as many tracks as you want to. And we have a vast library of different cars. So we have over 100 different cars which you can purchase as add-ons. So And everything from the European manufacturers to the U.S. manufacturers of all ages, vintage to newest models. Thanks so much. Really good insight from Frank Thiessen. He is president of Carrera of America, based in New Jersey. Slot car racing, making a comeback in a pandemic world. The pandemic has nearly crashed air travel as people are nervous about flying. They're worried that they could catch the virus while stuck on board a plane with others. The CDC investigated 1,600 cases of people who flew while at risk of spreading the coronavirus identifying nearly 11,000 people who potentially were exposed to the virus on flights. Now, the CDC says some of these people have gotten sick, but it can't confirm a case of transmission on a plane. And that's because of incomplete contact tracing information and the fact that the virus incubates over several days. The CDC's guidance for all kinds of travel remains that staying home is the best way to protect yourself and other people from the virus. There's been no flip-flop on this guidance, at least not yet. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.